Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And today I am uh, glad to be joined by a longtime friend of the show, and that is Mr. Carl Erskine, Dodgers pitcher. How are you doing, Carl? Hey, good uh, to see you. Good to hear from you again. Uh, good to hear from yeah. you too, Carl. And, um, you know, uh, before we get into any Subway Series talk, uh, since the Yankees and the Mets are playing each other right now, I thought that we'd uh, discuss some of the, the old Subway Series games. But last night when I called to prep, I know that you were watching the Brooklyn Nets, unfortunately, lose to the Miami Heat. Have you been keeping up with the uh, Brooklyn Nets? I, I gather you're a Pacers fan, but uh, I'm sure uh, they've endeared uh, themselves to you as well. Yeah, well, of course, uh, Indianapolis has become, a, you know, really a sports hub now, and we're happy to have both the Colts there and the Pacers. And then with uh, the NBA now to have the Nets uh, representing Brooklyn, that's that's another close tie for me. So, so yeah, I kind of watch uh, that. I go to the Pacer games when I can, and I, I try to see the Nets when they come in. And, um, you know, there's quite an irony behind that whole story. Mr. O'Malley wanted that very site mm-hmm. where the Nets play in Brooklyn for the Brooklyn Dodgers. That's where he wanted to build a stadium. And 60-plus years later, uh, the city fathers saw the wisdom of building a stadium there. <laughs> if they had done that in 1956 or seven, uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers might still exist. You know, it's uh, it's unfortunate that it's uh, it took so long, but, you know, uh, at the same time, uh, the sports of Brooklyn kind of transitioned over to basketball over the years. And so if there's any sport to come back as a major professional sport, I, I, it makes sense that basketball would be the one to return to Brooklyn. Well, my understanding was, too, that when the Dodgers left uh, New York and the Mets uh, finally emerged, that there was a covenant with the city of New York that no other major league baseball team could come into the city. I don't know if that still exists or whether I have that in error, but my uh, my understanding was that uh, no Major League Baseball team could come back into New York City after the Mets existed and mm-hmm. the Yankees were uh, still there. That would that uh, would make perfect. Leagues. Yeah, that would make perfect sense because I was, I was going to yeah. say that would make perfect sense because um, even even when anybody like the Yankees or the Mets would want to move a triple a, a or a double a uh, club to the area uh if, if you know you know the cyclones obviously are single or are short season uh, uh right. short season a and so the fact that they don't even allow double a or triple a in the area i think you're right. you're completely right about about no major league team ever uh, would it be able to move uh let's say brooklyn you know right so well uh, the, but the city's big enough maybe to oh, of course for years, a hundred years, the city supported, I think, two, three major league teams. But uh, that was very unique to have three uh, major league franchises in the mm-hmm. same city. I it, it was it was remarkable, anyway. and the population of the city must have been half of what it is now too. When when they were able to support three ball clubs. Well, it must have been close to twelve million. I don't know what it is today, but uh, I think Brooklyn was about two million of the of the mix. They were the Brooklyn was sort of the orphan borough, really, uh, seemed like. <clears throat> it didn't have much political clout. Um, it was a city of churches. Uh, 
You didn't have a lot of the glitz of Broadway and uh, uptown Manhattan. You had a lot of uh, residential areas. Uh, in fact, I wondered if Mr. Ricky was brilliant enough to uh, actually see Brooklyn as the best place to integrate baseball because it had such an ethnic mix in the city of Italians, uh, Jewish uh, folks. Uh, there was a Norwegian section. Uh, and I don't know whether Mr. Ricky took that into account, but, but he may have. And uh, so Brooklyn was the right place for that to happen. And the first time that you ever faced uh, the rivals of the Giants in Brooklyn uh, at Abbott's Field um, was the first time that you faced the Giants, actually. Uh, I believe, and tell me if I'm wrong, uh, the second game of a doubleheader on Friday, September 3rd, 1948, it was the first time that you ever faced the Giants. And I almost feel bad for bringing this one up because you lost the game. But <laughs> I, uh, I still thought I'd try to see uh, what your memories of the first time you ever faced the New York Giants was. Yeah, you know, I, in fact, I, I don't have a recall of the first ever meeting of the Giants. But before my career was over, uh, I had 32 decisions against the Giants. And as far as I can remember my record, uh, it's the only team that I didn't have an edge on in the National League. Mm. And I had 16 wins and 16 losses against the Giants. <clears throat> and, and so I didn't – they didn't dominate me, but neither did I dominate them. <laughs> and right. So uh, that rivalry was really fierce, though, in New York. It was hard to describe uh, two teams in the same city in the same league. And in those days, there were only eight teams in the league, so – we faced the other seven teams 22 times a year, each season. That was 11 at home, 11 on the road. But when we faced the Giants, all those games were in the same city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that rivalry probably can never be uh, actually brought to the intensity. Uh, you know, I never knew a family in New York area that wasn't split at least two ways and sometimes three ways <laughs> with the three New York teams all in the same city. So that was such a unique sports climate, and uh, those games were all really, I mean, your manhood was on the line when you played against uh, the Giants or the Yankees. And, uh, and I know they didn't like crossing that Brooklyn Bridge coming yeah. into Brooklyn because it was sort of like a war zone in those days, uh, <laughs> especially with the Giants. Right. And speaking of the Giants, the first time that you uh, took a trip to Upper Manhattan, or the first time, I'm sorry, that you pitched uh, in Upper Manhattan, it looks like, uh, based off of what I was able to find, September 12, 1948. Do you remember anything about the first time that you pitched in the polo ground? You know, I don't really exactly, because uh, if, you, if I got beat, I probably tried to forget it. Uh, <laughs> but, and, and then I don't recall, I do re recall pitching several times in the polo ground later through my career, but mm -hmm. the first time doesn't register with me because the first season I came up in 48, um, I did win my first five games. I, I was 5-0 and to start my career in the big league, uh, which is pretty good, but I had some arm problems uh, during one of those games, mm -hmm. and so I finished the season, which was a half season. I came up mid-year. Uh, I, I finished the season 6-3, and three. Uh, and I just don't recall. Now, 49, the next season, my biggest recall of the polar grounds was watching Rex Barney pitch a no-hitter in the rain 
uh, in a night game at the Polo Grounds. And I remember the last out was an amazing play because um, he had the no-hitter, but the last out there was a high pop foul fly that came over toward our dugout. And Bruce Edwards catching for the Dodgers. Looking up into the rain and into the lights, was managed to catch that ball for the final out. Well, I was just a young guy uh, on the bench watching all that take place. And uh, so I do remember that game in the polo grounds, but that was in 49. And I was involved in the game. What are some of the things about the polo grounds that really stuck out to you? Uh, Of course, you know. Uh, the the down the line and just the odd horseshoe uh, horseshoe shape. But what, what are some of the things that other than that that stuck out to you? Well, you know they always talk about how pictures changed when they went to different ballparks. Uh, I, that never registered with me. I was pretty much trying to be the same picture regardless. The thing you did try to do in the polo grounds was to protect against balls down either line because it was just about uh, 300 feet. I think, as I recall, down the right or left. But if you could manage to get fly balls hit anywhere else in the ballpark, it was big as an airport out there. Had <laughs> lots of room, and that's why Willie Mays was such a fantastic fielder because he could run forever. Uh, our center fielder, Duke Snyder, he was a fantastic fielder, but he didn't have any room in Evans Field <laughs> to go back deep for fly balls or chase them down in the right or left center because it, was, uh, it wasn't as open, but the polo grounds was such a wide-open ballpark. Now, what I do remember, that the fans in the polo grounds didn't seem nearly as rabid as the fans in uh, Brooklyn, but they weren't quite as close either. Uh, Brooklyn right. was a very, very intimate little ballpark, and the fans were so close, you could hear conversations uh, out on the mound. I could hear people in the stands real easy. And the polo grounds, you swept back a little more, and you didn't have really quite the uh, intimacy that you had at Evans Field. Uh, but I, uh, I think pitching against the Giants, uh, somehow there was a chemistry there uh, over the history of the two teams meeting over and over again. Uh, of course, the Giants at that time had a much uh, better winning percentage overall than the Dodgers did. They the Giants had won more pennants, I believe, uh, at my years. And it wasn't until the Jackie Robinson era from 57, 47 to 57, uh, that the Dodgers really began to have a team consistently either winning the pennant or contesting for the pennant. Because uh, that decade was, was when the Dodgers, or the Boys of Summer, as it's become known, uh, actually became a consistent threat. But I think the Giants over the years in the Mellot era mm-hmm. and and previously the the Bill Terry uh, era, uh, I think the Giants may have more or less dominated uh, in the city uh, over the Dodgers. But but that rivalry was was inflamed. It was like throwing gasoline visiting fire when DeRocher, <laughs> the Dodger manager, up until Forty-eight, when he left the Dodgers in mid-season and showed up as managing across town at the Giants. Now, come on. The Rocher was a Dodger, but when he went across town and became a Giant uh, manager, that inflamed that rivalry even more, if you could imagine that. 
And so uh, by the time I got there, Leo had just left. In fact, Leo was responsible for me getting to the big leagues because I was a hot shot pitcher at Double A in Texas, Fort Worth, Texas. And I'd won 15 games by mid-July. And DeRocher was telling Mr. Ricky, I want this kid. And I, w- I learned that through the scouts that would come out and follow the, the team and send the reports in. So uh, Bert Schotten was his chief scout. And he used to tell me, he said, Mr. let me tell you, DeRocher's crying the blues. He wants you bad, but Mr. Ricky thinks you're too young, you're too green. You're only in your second season in pro baseball. And uh, he didn't want to bring you up. But at the time Mr. Ricky finally decided to bring me up was almost coincided with the day that Leo left, (laughs) was fired, and uh, ended up with the Giants. So when I came up, Bert Schotten had been named as interim manager. And so he's the guy that scouted me in the minors. And now, lo and behold, I get to the big legs, and Bert Schotten, in fact, is a manager. And that was on uh, July 25, 1948. What do you remember about the first game that you uh, you got into? Oh, I remember that game very well because uh, it was a Sunday, and I checked into the Shinley Hotel in Pittsburgh. That's where the team was playing. I didn't know a soul on the big team. And I had my little duffel bag set Fort Worth on the side of it. <laughs> and I came down from my room. And I wanted to go to the ballpark early. Well, I didn't know anything about Pittsburgh. I didn't know anything about Forbes Field. And so I came down to the lobby, and it was about midday, and it was an afternoon game, so it was probably uh, late morning maybe. And I walked out on this sprawling porch on the Shinley Hotel, which was out in a park setting. It wasn't in the downtown. and a beautiful landscape around it. And I asked the first guy I saw, uh, if, how, uh, how do you get to uh, uh, Forbes Field? And uh, it must have been Billy Cox because I learned later, but I didn't know him at the time. But here's the Dodger team sitting out there on the porch waiting for time to go to the ballpark. So I said, how, how do you get to Forbes Field? And uh, Billy Cox looked at me, and he looked at that duffel bag, and he knew I was this green rookie. And he said, oh, uh, you take a cab. Well, I walked down this long runway out to the street and I hailed a taxi. I got in the guy says, who you work to buddy? I said, Forbes Field. Well he looked back at me and he said, what? I said, Forbes Field. And he said, are you kidding me? Well I looked up at the porch and these guys were all breaking up laughing because Forbes Field was a half a block around the corner from the Shinley Hotel. (laughs) So that's how I got initiated. But I went to the ballpark early, walked over there, got me a locker, and then eventually the the rest of the team came. And the first guy to my locker was Jackie Robinson. He had had hit against me in a spring game in Fort Worth, a preseason game. And he told me that day, he says, kid, you won't be down here very long. Uh, I hit against you twice today. Uh, with the stuff you got, you're, gonna, you're not going to be down here very long. Well, you sure enough, uh, after winning 15 at Fort Worth, uh, then I was uh, with the Dodgers. So Jackie came right to my locker at Fordsville and said, um, Carl, you, you, I knew you'd make it, and I'm glad you're here. I knew you couldn't miss. That was a great boost for a young kid. Well, the game started that day, and they put me in the bullpen. 
So uh, the game went to the eighth inning, and we're behind two runs, and Hugh Casey was the pitcher. He was trying to nail down the win, but uh, they got some runs off of him, and they were, they were down a couple runs, and they called the bullpen, got me up, got me ready, and brought me in. So now I'm, uh, I'm in my first game, and uh, I'm struggling around a little bit to get the ball over. I'm pretty nervous. Uh, but uh, I got a man out, and then eventually uh, uh, Ralph Kiner comes to the plate. Well, I didn't know Ralph Kiner from anybody, but I didn't know how many home runs he's been hitting. But I got Kiner. He hit a line drive left field, a sinking line drive, and George Shuba was playing left field. And Shuba was a great hitter, a super pure hitter. But he was a little shaky with the glove. He wasn't a very good defensive player. But on this play, Shuba charged the ball, and he made a shoestring catch, and he doubled a runner off first base and got me out of the inning. And the next, the, the top of the next inning, which was the ninth, we scored about five runs. Mm-hmm. And so we wiped out the two-run deficit and got, got a two or three-run lead, and I ended up being a winning pitcher. On my first game, first inning, I get the win. So now years passed, and I was at an old-timers game, and Shuba was there. And I said, hey, George, did I ever thank you for making that great shoestring catch in left field off a Kiner and turn it into a double play, and you got me my first win? He said, do you remember that play? And George Shuba says, yeah, Carl, I remember that play. I trapped the ball. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, I trapped the ball, and they, let, they didn't catch it, and uh, it turned it into a double play. <laughs> that was my first win in the big leagues. Oh, that's, that's a great story. It's, it's a good digression to go uh, from, from the Giants real quick, but uh, thank you for that. Because um, I, I, I had had, uh, I'd had the, the tab open, and it's really it, it looks like Archie Vaughn um, – Pinch hit for you, and uh, he was uh, part of the the, re- the comeback before scoring, uh, be- before going ahead and and winning by uh, it looks like a score of seven to five was the or seven to six it looks like uh, because uh, a run was given up in the bottom half. But uh, yeah, you you were able to stretch out for that win. Uh, they they were able to hold it later on in the game, and right, um, right. Uh, that's uh, it's just a great story. And so last night you were also telling me about uh, a two hitter that you threw uh, in the polo grounds. And um, you, you were talking about a player, and, and by the way, his name is Hank Thompson. But I'll let you tell Hank the story. Hank Thompson, absolutely. I thought of it later. Yeah, it was a little, he's a little left-handed hitter. Yeah, he's an infielder, third baseman, I believe. A uh, good fast runner. And uh, well, it was night game in the Polo Grounds. I don't remember what year this was, but it was uh, August 11th, 1953. Okay, so I hit him on the fist with with a pitch, and he blooped it just over the pitcher's mound, back towards second, beat it out for a base hit. So he comes up again later in the inning, later in the game, not the same inning, later in the game. I hit him on the fist again, and he barely nubbed it and hit it the same place for the second hit. (laughs) That was the only hit the Giants got that night. And I always thought, boy, you know, you don't mind a guy rips one and except you're no hitter, but right. there was two pitches I fooled a guy on, but they both turned into blue pits, and uh, but anyway, I got the shutout. Mm-hmm. You, you did, and it looks like you were taking on Sal Mackley uh, that day. Did you guys match up a lot? We did a few times. Um, 
you know, Magley was so overpowering in Evansfield. I think he won 11 straight against us at Evansfield, something like that. He was so dominant. And not only that, insult to injury, uh, he would do it with less than 100 pitches. And, uh, and, and also, he was a headhunter. Magley would, there were three guys on the Dodgers that Magley would actually knock down. He would actually uh, throw a high inside pitch to. Uh, Ferrello was one. Robinson was one. And Campanella was the other. He never threw at Hodges. He never threw at uh, Snyder, uh, two power hitters. But he, he'd often throw to uh, knock down Campy or, uh, or Jackie or, uh, or, or just those three. Now, um, it came out that Magley and I were going to pitch at Evans Field in a night game. Now, this would have been probably 55 or 6 somewhere in there. And let me tell you, the day you're going to pitch against the Giants, it's different. It's even different than the World Series. Somehow, this, as I said, your manhood's on the line. When you're playing the Giants, I mean, you've you got to get it out. You've you got to beat these guys, especially in front of the home crowd. Well, I pitched against Magley, and Magley never shaved the day he was going to pitch for a couple of days. Uh, that was kind of unusual in our day. You didn't see so much hair on the faces. But Magnum was dark-complected. He had his hat pulled down low over his eyes, and he looked meaner than a snake. He, honestly, John, he would—he looked like he wanted to cut your head off. And uh, and then he would—he'd throw that flat curveball of his that broke so sharp, and uh, he'd get us out. But I finally, on the night, I finally beat Magley in front of the home crowd. I think it ended up nine to one, something like that. But we never could beat Magley in our ballpark. But I took a lot of pride. Nobody will ever remember the game with me. But I took a lot of pride in beating the Yankees, beating the Giants, and Magley in our home park. But I think he had won ten or eleven times before we finally broke the streak. And then he uh, traded for him in 1956. I'm sorry. Oh, I said, uh, and then traded for him in 1956, which must have been very strange, uh, not only for the fans, but for the players as well. Yeah. Well, Buzzy Bavese called me uh, in the middle of the, or early in the 56 season. And Magley had been traded to the, to Cleveland uh, the year before, 55, I think. So he was in Cleveland. So Buzzy called me. I was player representative. And Buzzy says, uh, what would you think? if we could get Magley. I said, Buzzy, is this a stunt or what? He said, no, no, I'm serious. Magley is at Cleveland, and we could make a good trade for him. What do you think? <laughs> I said, Buzzy, you better bring a bodyguard with him <laughs> if he's going to come to the Dodger clubhouse. And he, I, said, well, you, I said, is he healthy? And Buzzy said, yeah, as far as we know, because Magley was older now. Mm-hmm. He probably was in his late 30s at that time, at least, maybe older. So I said, is he healthy? And Buzzy said, everything we know about him, yes, he is. I said, if this guy can pitch, he's probably the he's probably one of the best professional pitchers in the league. And he'd, he'd probably help us. Well, they made the trade, and, of course, Magley did win. What did he win that year? 12 games for us? 
something like that. One of them was a no-hitter against the Phillies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the strangest sight was to see Magley in a white Dodger uniform. <laughs> and the night he pitched the first time, uh, after knocking Campy down, who knows how many times, now here's Campy and Magley walking out to the field together. Uh, he's a starting pitcher. <laughs> Campy's walking out with his arm and his shoulder. <laughs> I said, oh, nothing will ever surprise me again in baseball. Okay. So what do you remember about your first uh, World Series appearance on October 9th, 1949? Well, I don't think I was auspicious. I, I think I came in relief, and you're reaching me, uh, pushing me here to reach <laughs> reach back in my memory bank. But, uh, I don't recall exactly what happened, except I I think I faced Joe DiMaggio. You I did? know I faced him in that series. And... Um, at DiMaggio, I got him to pop up. Mm-hmm. It was a tremendously high infield fly. And uh, it must have been 200 feet up and 200 down, but a peewee caught it at shortstop. That's the only time I faced DiMaggio uh, any place, except in, later in an old-timers game. But, uh, but I think in the inning, as I recall, Bobby Brown was, uh, uh, was a hitter, I do believe. Uh, you doubled off of me in that inning. I, I don't know. He, I think he got a base hit. It seemed like he hit the scoreboard, uh, maybe with a base hit or a double. But I didn't. Uh, I didn't pitch well, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, it's uh, you. I mean, it's you know, the, your first World Series appearance. You're facing Rizzuto, Hendrick, Barra, DiMaggio, and Brown. That's that's quite the the first five to face. Well, you know, I was. I was just a young kid. I was, oh, I'd be 22 by that time. And uh, I just had this half season in uh, uh, the big leagues the, uh, the season before. And then uh, because of arm trouble, I was optioned in the spring, and I had to fight my way back. Uh, but in 49, I, I was 8-1 the last half of the season. and uh, But I was still battling some arm problems. So they were using me in and out um, of relief somewhat. So that's so when I came in to relief uh, in that World Series game, which unfortunately we got beat uh, four four games out of five. Preacher Rowe uh, beat the Yankees one nothing. In the second game, came Newcomb, who was a rookie, uh, pitched a marvelous game, and he and Reynolds was nothing, nothing into the ninth inning. And I remember the pitch just as well as if it happened yesterday. Newcomb threw Tommy Hendrick a fastball low inside, almost out of the strike zone, just above his shoe tops. And Hendrick hit it down the right field line into the stands for a walk-off home run. Mm. That That was kind of a forecast what kind of luck Newcomb was going to have in World Series to come. Nuke, as great a pitcher as Newcomb has been and was, he never won a World Series game. And it's just ironic that in 56, uh, we played the series against the Yankees. Newcomb had won 27 games in 56, and he didn't win a game in the 56 series. Uh, he, he just had some really bad luck, and mm-hmm. 
I just I just always hate for Nuke because the greatness in him. Uh, somebody will always say, but he never won a, a World Series. Uh, but he had some really bad breaks in that World Series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's too bad. But you know, say uh, la vie, he got a ring as well. So. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, Nuke, Nuke was a quality pitcher. Uh, I think he ought to be in the Hall of Fame. The reason I do is because I know his number of wins. I think Nuke won 150 games, maybe something close to that. Uh, but he left. He lost two years in service, right in the middle of his career, his peak peak years. And then uh, he was also uh, one of the first black players in the league. Uh, Jackie 47. Newcomb came in 49, but uh, there were very few black players who had come in the league yet. And so Newcomb was one of those early black players that had to live in hotels or private homes and not stay with the team uh, because they didn't accept black guests in most of the hotels. So he had, he suffered all those indignities, and he handled it well. He was never in trouble. He never uh, made a ruckus out of anything. And I think because Newcomb was a the player in the Negro League and came into the majors and was rookie of the year, uh, MVP, uh, and uh, Cy Young, one of the first Cy Young winners, he won all three of those awards. And uh, and I think he, he's, he should be in a special category because I think he belongs in the Hall of Fame as one of the pioneers, actually, of, of baseball in – uh, but they look at him on basically on his just his record, which was less than 200 wins, and very few guys get in uh, as pitchers with less than uh, 200 wins. But uh, anyway, that's my opinion. And I said, Nuke, I, I would agree. I said, Nuke, uh, what do you think about it? He said, I don't want in. I don't want in any way except by the vote, the way everybody else goes in. If they put me in uh, because I came out of the black leg or Negro leg or something, I won't accept it. I said, well, I still think you belong in there. But You know, I think that uh, – I, I was going to say, I think that it, it gets lost that, uh, you know, in, in the hoopla about Joe you know, Hodges not being a Hall of Fame, uh, that there are comparative uh, uh, numbers um, when it comes to Don Newcomb as well. And, and you know, you're looking at this, and, and uh, it, the Veterans Committee could uh, – it could and should take a, a, a big hard look at this. Well, Newcomb says I won't. Uh, I won't accept it. I, I don't want it to happen when I'm gone either. I, I can tell my heirs uh, don't accept it if I don't get it while I'm alive, and if I don't mm. get it through the regular uh, process, uh, I don't want it. And so he, I said, Nuke, you never written a book. You've never had a guy. You you got some great historic things to talk about baseball. He says, Carl, what I know. He goes with me to the grave. <laughs> so Nuke has stated his case, and that's it. Yep, exactly. Um, before we get to the 14 strikeouts, because uh, I do want to cover that before the, end of the, before the end of the show, I wanted to let you tell the story about October 5th, 1952. Well, you know, I started my first start in the World Series within uh, the second game in 52. And I had an accident in the clubhouse about 15 minutes before I was to start warming up. Uh, I had a baseball, uh, I had an injury to my right knee uh, one time in basketball in high school. And I had a very, very tender place in my right knee. And uh, I happened to bump it on a heater in the clubhouse. 
and it made me look quite ill. Oh, I was knocked out. I was on the trainer's table 15 minutes before I was to start. Well, they got me, uh, gave me some smelling salts. They got me straight and I got me up and dressed and said, hey, you, what's happened with you? I said, well, I think I'll be okay. So I started a ball game, but Rashi beat me in the second game. So now <clears throat> the fifth game, I get my second start, <clears throat> and it, we're in Yankee Stadium. Uh, I was watching, uh, looking at some telegrams that came to me before the game. Uh, they were on my stool in front of my locker, and I was going through these te- telegrams, well-wishing from back home in Indiana. But I got one from a guy in Texas, and this telegram says, uh, congratulations, says, uh, good luck on the fifth game of the World Series on the fifth day of October, and congratulations on your fifth wedding anniversary. Well, I, I read that. I thought, why, golly, that's right. I never thought of it. Uh, fifth game, fifth day, fifth anniversary. So Vince Scully was uh, coming to the clubhouse along with Red Barber, the announcers. They were getting a little tidbit of information, talking to the players. And so he came by my locker, and I showed him the uh, telegram. He said, okay, let's, let's have that. I'd like to take it up in the locker up to uh, the booth. Uh, it might come in handy. So the game went on. I'm leading four to nothing in Yankee Stadium, pitching well. I just uh, uh, just was having a, a really powerful ball game until the fifth inning. In the fifth inning, they got a couple cheap runs off of me, and then Mize had a three-run homer, which made a five-run inning in the fifth inning. Mm-hmm. Dresden came to the mound and talked to me a minute, and he left me in the game to everybody's surprise. And I thought he just left me in uh, going to use a pitch hitter because I blew a four-run lead. So we're behind five to four. But he left me the game. He let me hit the next inning. And finally in the sixth inning, I think, or seventh, uh, Duke Snyder scored uh, the tying run. So now the score is five to five. But the game went 11 innings. And I finally got the side out in the 11th. And I had retired 19 in a row after the home run by Mice. <laughs> It made Dresden look like a genius because I got everybody out. The last out was Yogi Berra, and I struck Yogi out to end the game. Now, Vince Scully is up in the booth, and he says, I'm watching for any uh, – this five thing is amazing. Fifth day, fifth game, fifth anniversary, five runs in the fifth inning. The Yankees had five hits. He said, I'm looking for anything that's got a five in it. And he swears to this day that when the last out was made, when Barrett struck out, he said, I looked at the stadium clock. It was five minutes past five. (laughs) I don't have to make that up. That is a true story. (laughs) And it's one of the most remarkable uh, number games that I ever – read or heard about, and I was right in the middle of it. And I don't mean to see if there's anything uh, about five with uh, this question, but with the, the talk of pitch count these days, uh, you threw, you know, all 11 innings. How, how many pitches do you think you threw? The only thing I can tell you is something else happened that nobody knew about. The last pitch to Barra, I broke a blister on my second oh. finger. I threw so many pitches that I had actually, and I felt it during the ninth in, the 11th inning, a little stinging sensation on my second finger. 
And that's a cur- that's the finger you throw the curveball with usually. But I'd thrown so many pitches that that last pitch to Barra, which was a curveball, uh, he took it for strike three. I broke the blister, and I had a big red gouge place on the tip of my finger. <laughs> but who cared? The game was over. We won the game, and uh, and Dresden looked like a, the smartest manager in the world. And uh, but anyway, another little sidelight. I had a writer come to me sometime after that game, and he said, and the sporting news picked on this too. Uh, in the 11 innings, uh, the Yankees uh, only got hits in two innings. So this writer says to me, Carl, do you realize somebody before Don Larson pitched nine no-hit innings in a World Series game? <laughs> I said, I never heard of it. He said, you were there. <laughs> he said, in the 11-inning game against the Yankees, they only got hits in two innings. So you pitched nine no-hit innings in a World Series game. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I, I was feeling kind of proud of that until mm-hmm. I read somewhere where Babe Ruth had pitched a 14 in a game, <laughs> and he had 10 innings in which there was no hits. You can't beat Babe Ruth. I yeah, in Ruth, anything. No matter what you do. <laughs> well, uh, tell us about uh, the time that you, you held the record for a little while of most strikeouts in the World Series game. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, also another unique thing. I in 1953, I was 20 and six, so I led the league and had finished the season real strong. In fact, if they left me in the game, uh, we cinched early enough that I pitched maybe three times before the season ended. After I'd already won 20, but Dresson didn't let me pitch past the third or fourth inning, just kind of keeping in tune. But I was ahead in, in those three ball games and could, could have won two or three more. But uh, but anyway, he wanted Joe Black, some of these other younger pitchers, to get a chance to get a win. So that was fine. <clears throat> but I was to be the workhorse in the World Series. And Justin told me, he said, uh, you're going to start the first game. And then uh, likely, if it goes seven, you're going to start three ball games in this World Series. Because I was the, the lead horse, Newcomb. Newcomb was in the service at this time. So now I'm, my starting assignment was at Yankee Stadium, uh, the first game. Now, don't tell me what happens. Who, who knows what happens? But I had a bad first inning at Yankee Stadium and uh, ended up the Martin tripled off of me with the bases loaded. And I got, I got taken out early in that ball game. A very big disappointment. I mean, really, a huge, a huge uh, loss for me. Uh, I ended up not – I didn't even get the loss. We ended up tying a game later, but uh, and somebody else picked up the loss because we didn't lose game one. And then we lost game two. But Dresson told me after the first game, he said, look, you didn't throw a lot of pitches, so I'm going to start you the third game. Well, that was back at Evans Field with no travel day. Because <clears throat> New York, they didn't have a travel day. They didn't need one. So I was to start the third game at Evans Field against the Yankees. My roommate was Duke Snyder, and I told Duke, I said, Duke, you know what? I I am so disappointed uh, that first game. I got a pitch like there's no tomorrow. We're down two games. And so I went to the mound in the third game, probably more determined than I've ever been in, in any time of my life. 
Now, you're playing against a great ball team, the Yankees. But anyway, the game starts. <clears throat> pitching against Rashi again. Uh, Stingle always said he was the pitcher I'd pick if I had to win one game. Rashi was a very, very quality professional pitcher. So now I got him again, and uh, the game starts. Well, I'm doing fine. Uh, the score is one to nothing, and they tied it one-one. And then we get another run uh, later in the game. It's it's uh, it's now one to uh, we got two two to one lead, and they tied it one to one. So this is a real tight, real tough game. And I'm striking out some people, but I'm not counting strikeouts. <laughs> I'm just trying to get to get them out. We get to the bottom of the eighth inning, and uh, the score is 2-2. Campy hits a home run off of uh, Rashi to give us a 3-2 lead. So I take the mound the top of the ninth, and Stengel sends up a pinch hitter, Don Bolwick. I knew him from the minor leagues, uh, and so I knew he was a good little fastball hitter. I struck him out on three high fastballs. And the announcer made some announcement, and the crowd just roared. I didn't hear the announcement. But what he had announced, Tex Rickard was the announcer at Evans Field, he had announced that that strikeout had just tied a 13-strikeout record set in 1929 by Howard Emke of the Philadelphia Athletics against the Cubs. I had no, I didn't hear it, so I didn't have a notion because... <laughs> I'm looking at the next hitter, who's Johnny Mize. Remember the 52 five-inning game, three-run homer? This guy was as good a hitter, I think, almost as Ted Williams. He had a tight strike zone, and he had power to all fields. He hit left-handed, and he was he was a tough out. Well, Campy called for curveball. I dropped it over strike one. He called the same pitch again, strike two. And then he fouled off a pitch, and the next pitch is struck out Mice, and the crowd went bananas. I still did not hear the announcement that that was a 14 strikeout and a World Series strikeout record. Well, anyway, I got the side out in the ninth, and I go in the clubhouse, and we've won now three to two. And Preacher Rowe came to my locker. He pushed himself in through the writers. They were all around my locker. And he says, Carl, did you realize... Uh, you struck out 14 today. That's a new World Series record. That's how I knew uh, that I had, uh, had had gotten a strikeout record. But um, Mantle, who was a free swinger, I struck Mantle out four straight times. Joe Collins, first baseman, who is also a good left-handed power hitter, struck him out five, four times. <laughs> and Joe was the last out in the game. Uh, I came within a fraction. Uh, he barely nubbed the ball back to me for the last out, or Joe would have been five times. <laughs> but, but anyway, the irony of that story is, first of all, failure is a great motivator. Mm-hmm. That motivated me to pitch a game better than I'd ever pitched any place in pro baseball, and it happened to be in the World Series. Uh, I had good stuff. I had good control. And Campanella... Uh, caught a lot of pitchers in his day, the Negro League and Satchel Page, you name them. And Campy gave me the highest compliment uh, I ever got in baseball. Uh, not to me, but I, I read where Campy said the greatest game, the best game I ever caught was Erskine's strikeout record in, uh, in the third game of the 53 series. 
That was yes. the highest compliment I think I ever had paid to me. I mean, you look throughout the uh, the game, and obviously they scored two runs off of you, but they were all, you know, uh, it doesn't it doesn't say how it, it doesn't say how hard hit they were, but they were all singles basically. They were they they were the two of the cheapest runs. <laughs> you got to give the Yankees credit. Uh-huh. They're professionals. These guys. I never said one time in my whole life that the Yankees were lucky. They they seem to get all the good breaks. They take advantage of them. You couldn't give them this extra out. Mm-hmm. You couldn't hope to beat the Yankees and make two or three mistakes because that gives them an extra out in the inning. And believe me, you can't give the Yankees four outs in an inning and beat them with the lineup they had. And so you had to you had to be at your darn best to beat the Yankees. And uh, I had trouble beat. I beat them twice in the World Series, but I had a couple other shots at them. Uh, felt like I should have won two or three more games uh, in the series. Because we faced them in five different World Series, and and I got I don't know how many starts I had in those series, but I was in eleven games counting uh, relief plus the starts. But they they were such a historically uh, good team. Not only the tradition behind them, but these guys could play. They were they were good defensive players. Uh, they were a little cocky. They they had that self assurance. And uh, they were a real match uh, for our great Dodger team. We had some great Dodgers. Yeah. Our 52 team and 53 team, I'm telling you, we could beat anybody. But we didn't win the World Series in either one of those years. And and that's because we had a team to beat that was, that was just uh, above above the rest of us. So uh, as we wrap this this game up, what what exact pitch was uh, you know led to those the, the amount of strikeouts you had? Was there a, one particular pitch you really had working that day? Well, here's uh, another little uh, piece of uh, hidden uh, trivia here. Uh, of the 14 strikeouts, 10 of them were left-handed hitters. Now that defies the old rules about left-handed hitters against uh, right-handed pitchers. Uh, but I had a pitch, an overhand curveball. Straight, it broke straight down. It was just as good against left-handers as it was right-handers because it didn't. You didn't have to break it away from the hitter, keep it outside. You, uh, an overhand curveball, and you, all you have to do is keep it down. You don't want to hang it high, but you, if you keep it. So I had a very, very good sharp overhand curveball. Plus I had a pretty good fastball, and then I had an off-speed pitch that kind of helped set up the other two. But most of my strikeouts that day were the curveball because. Uh, uh, Mantle, Mantle struck out four times, but uh, two of the times were curveballs. The other two, he was kind of looking for the curve <laughs> and I threw the fastball by him. So uh, it took all three pitches. So, I, but the but the strikeout pitch, I, I never knew how many strikeouts I got with what pitch. But um, I can just kind of remember that I struck out a few guys with with fastballs, but. But most of the left-hand hitters were curveballs, overhand. It was an overhand curveball. <clears throat> and uh, Campy used to tell me, he said, look, you got to keep that down. you got to keep it down, but you bury it. I'll get it. Mm-hmm. And what he meant was you can't throw it too low. Just keep it down. Don't hang it. Keep it down. Well, I had a lot of confidence in Campy. And so even with bases, uh, people on base, I would break that curveball as low as I could. And that's where it's toughest to hit. So that was my best pitch. Now, there's another little quick story, if you wanted, about that game. It's kind of unique. Sure. Sure. 
Campanella was invited by uh, Edward R. Murrow to be the first guest on his new show uh, that he he was the one who started the idea of interviewing celebrities in their own home. And so um, he invited Campy, he had Campy set up to do the first show of Edward R. Murrow's, and it was going to be at Campy's home out in Long Island. And so on Friday night, they um, had a rehearsal, and that was after the second game of the series, which we lost. And so Edward R. Murrow said uh, to Campy, now look, the, the rehearsal went fine. It was all live in those days, no taping. Uh, so the shows were going to be live. He said, everything's gone. The rehearsal's fine. Now, Campy, all you have to do is hit a home run tomorrow to win the third game and then come on my show. That's exactly what happened. Roy hit the home run in the bottom of the eighth to beat the Yankees 3-2. Then he went on Edward R. Murrow's show. Uh, what was the name of that show? Um, person to Person. And that became an award-winning uh, television show. But that, that was kind of a sidelight to that uh, record game. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I, I can't tell you how uh, amazing it is uh, you know, with the Yankees and the Nets facing each other tonight, me being a, a great Nets fan, to talk uh, Subway Series legacy with you. It's uh, It's been spectacular, and I thank you for giving me some uh, some minutes today. Well, it's you know, at my stage in life, uh, to have you interested, to, to be able to say back to the city of New York, where I was so fortunate to be able to play most of my career, uh, to play on that big stage in New York City, is the ultimate for an athlete. Uh, maybe true in music, maybe true in politics and all that, but there's no place in the world uh, that that has a longer, more lasting look at an athlete who achieves anything, or sometimes it's a, a failure, but it lasts on that big stage longer than I think any place in the world. Thank you very much, Carl. Yeah, there's, there's uh, two... Major League pitch, there, there's two uh, p- uh, pitchers making their Major League debut tonight uh, in the Subway Series. Um, it's uh, Jacob DeGrom for the Mets and uh, Chase Whitley for the Yankees. So, uh, like you said, you know, it, it, it begins now. There's nowhere else uh, better than New York City, and uh, it should be exciting baseball. Again, Carl, thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. My pleasure, and thank you for calling me. Of course. Well, that's our show, everybody. Thank you for listening. Take care.